welcome along to 98 Now Out. Uh, remember, tell your friends, spread the word, and uh, let's grow this wonderful channel with all this wonderful content. Today, I'm talking to none other than Chris Stocks. Chris, welcome along. Good to see you. And uh, fresh off the plane back from India, I gather. Yes, I am, Darren. Thanks for having me. Lots to talk about. Um, we'll get on to England uh, in due course, but I just wanted to talk, everyone that I've known that has been over to the World Cup this time has got stories of uh, travel disruption, badly organised games, um, and uh, struggling at the uh, at the stadium with entry and uh, overzealous um, stewards, etc., etc., um, what are your thoughts on sort of overall how it all went? I think the uh, from an organisational point of view, it's been um, pretty suboptimal. I mean, you think tickets weren't released until what six weeks, two months before the tournament began. Um, I've heard countless stories of fans who've travelled over to India struggling to get into the ground because they have a a ticket on their phone or what they think's a ticket on their phone and they're told, no, you've got to go five miles away to collect a paper ticket, come back. And when they come back, they can't take bags in. So they have to go back to the hotel, come back to the ground. Um, and yeah, they've missed half the game. I, I know several fans who've had issues with A, with tickets and B, sort of overzealous security, meaning that they've had, you know, missed a lot of the games and... Uh, it's just been you know, not not ideal for for a fan in the stadium. It's, it's really it's a t TV tournament. If you if you really want to uh, get down to the basics of it, it's the BCCI and the ICC have staged this for a global television audience. But it's the paying spectators on the ground who uh, are treated like dirt, really. Yeah, I heard stories of people having bottles of water confiscated, um, sun cream confiscated. And being told they could buy them inside the ground, but when they got in, they couldn't find anyone that was was selling all those things. Yeah, I mean, it it, it is ridiculous. I mean, some of my colleagues' media uh, have been told they can't take laptops into the ground, and they've <sighs> had to find the ICC media manager to to tell the security that actually no, they're working. They need a laptop to get in. Um, it's been yeah, it's been pretty chaotic. I know in in Mumbai, Don Topley, who was there. To obviously watch uh, Reese before he had to unfortunately come home injured from the tournament, he had an issue getting into the ground in Mumbai. They wanted to basically take all his food and his medication off him, um, and you know he was protesting that you know look I'm a I'm a player's father, please allow me to take it in, and they weren't having any of it. So it's kind of they've been fairly equal on it. You know, doesn't matter who you are, you're not bringing certain things in, but it just seems a little bit unnecessary. Uh, and it just makes the fan experience of the grounds just, you know, unpleasant, really. Yeah, and as you say, it was if it was being kind of designed as a, a television event, it doesn't look good on TV screens. And it was widely commented over here that certainly as the tournament got underway, and particularly the England's opening game at uh, Ahmedabad, was basically in front of a handful of uh, spectators. It was almost akin to watching a day two of a county championship game on some sort of... Uh, distant county ground somewhere um it didn't it wasn't a good look particularly in the opening game yeah the the opening game um because the stadium is so vast and i made a bad it looked worse than it was but you know the icc gave an official attendance for that match of fifty five thousand. <laughs> I, I, I was in the stadium and i'm telling you it wasn't fifty five thousand. most people estimated maybe twenty five thousand. 
And that was after a good few hours where people did start coming after they finished work and it filled up slightly. But it, it, yeah, that, that opening game didn't set the right tone. Um, tendencies for some other neutral games, especially the England games that I went to, weren't actually that bad. Mumbai, for example, when they played South Africa, that was that was a fairly decent uh, attendance. I reckon four-fifths of the ground was full. England-Australia back in Ahmedabad was much better. Um, but you look at some of the games, you know, the, the the level of attendance were was not great, was it? I mean, the fact that tickets would be so hard to come by and it was also last minute has led to that. But you think in India, a country that's so passionate about cricket, that you'd have sellout games for, you know, for, for most, most of those group stage matches at least. Well, that was the thing. Um, and also the fixtures weren't released until a month before. So if you're traveling from England or Australia, you know, from one of the more far-flung countries, I wasn't going to say West Indies, but we won't go there. Um, you know, it, you've got to get yourself organized. And uh, if you don't know where your team's playing, it's, it's, it's not good, is it? And it is a World Cup. And as we're constantly reminded um, about India being um, so passionate about cricket, you would have thought that people would have been falling over themselves to go and watch any World Cup match in their country. Yeah, yeah, you you would do. Um, I think a part of the problem as well is that the tickets have been quite expensive, um, especially if you're, you know, you're, you're Indian, where, you know, the, the, the cost of living over there is much cheaper than the UK. And some of the tickets, especially for the India games, have been, you know, £100 upwards and, and you know, to your average Indian cricket fan, that is a hell of a lot of money. I mean, it's a lot of money for people from the UK to go to cricket, but um, the prices haven't haven't helped. Um, and just overall, the organisation of this event has just been very, very poor, I would say. For a world event, it should be much better. And the fixtures should have been given much longer in advance. And the fact is, yeah, fans have, haven't been able to make proper plans. When they have, they've been last minute. Um, and it's just all left a bit of an unpalatable taste in the mouth, to be honest with you, Darren. Yeah, no, I, I get that. I mean, I, I mean, the last World Cup that was was over here, 2019, um, I went to quite a lot of games and that, and, and everywhere I went was packed, and fans just wanting to be part of a, a sort of a cricketing festival. I mean, a festival was sort of how it felt. Um, and obviously, as you got to the sort of the, 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 the final stages, then it became a bit more sort of uh, edgy, but... People were there to support it. I just don't understand why India, of all places, it's, it's been such a struggle. But I guess for the reasons you've just said, that um, maybe that contributes. Yeah, and 2019 was a, was a fantastic event. It was well run as well. Um, what you've got to remember is the grounds in, in England are a lot smaller than you have in India. So if you have a stadium that holds... 100,000, 110,000, or even 60,000 in Calcutta, and it's half full. It doesn't look great, does it? But you've still got a decent number of fans coming through the gates. Um, the ICC estimate 1 million fans have gone to the games so far. Um, but I would take the ICC figures with a with a pinch of salt because they've been reluctant to give out attendances for games. Uh, even when they've been specifically requested, they, they refuse to give an attendance figure because uh, the BCCI will not give them the attendance figure for whatever reason that is. It's just all not very transparent. And as I said earlier, a bit suboptimal. They're not transparent about anything really, are they? I remember Jared Kimber's excellent uh, film, Death of a Gentleman, um, which was a, a constant battle to try and get some kind of clarity. On, and I think from that point of view, it was about finances and uh, and how 
tour programs are scheduled, but he got it was pushed back almost physically and you know literally uh, in trying to get information out of the ICC. It was uh, it was very much a closed shop. Yeah, the remarkable thing about the lack of transparency from the ICC was the the story that came out of the England India game in Lucknow, where before the start of play, the UK journalists. Um, were all briefed by a member of the ICC comms team that actually it was the top eight of the World Cup that qualified for the Champions Trophy. England had no idea. They found out during the game. <sighs> this decision being made apparently in November 2021, but the ICC had not told anybody. They'd not released it to the media. They'd not released anything to anybody. They told people in the meeting there what was happening but because of the turnover in the ECB, everyone's gone since then. Um, it was never communicated to the, the team or anyone in team management. It was remarkable, really. But it just goes to show that lack of transparency and lack of communication from the ICC a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, England did look perilously uh, close to sort of missing out completely. I think they've done enough to qualify for the champions trophy um so so let's get on to england now we were talking about the the, the, the poor organization of the tournament itself but um england's defense of that glorious day at lords back in 2019 it seems ever since then um that 50 over cricket in this country has kind of been sort of sidelined it was almost like well we've won the world cup so we'll just concentrate on other stuff now and even into this year and this summer there wasn't any sort of urgency about an upcoming big tournament. Um, have you got any thoughts on why that was particularly? I mean, you, you can look at schedules. Um, there was a backlog of one-day tours in particular because of COVID, um, which were shoehorned into the, the calendar. So you had, what, a tour of South Africa in January of this year and then a tour of Bangladesh in March, which sort of overlapped both ends of the New Zealand Test Tour. So it made it impossible for England to select their full-strength squads for either of those one-day series because they had the Test Squad in New Zealand. So Ben Stokes, Joe Root, Mark Wood, they were all in New Zealand. They couldn't physically get to South Africa or, or Bangladesh. Um Rob Key mentioned at the end of the tournament the morning after the Pakistan game to us that he took a lot of the blame because he prioritised test cricket and told Matthew Mott, the white ball coach, sorry, mate, you can't have your top players for some of these series. Um, that that was a symptom, of, of, I guess, of 50 over cricket not being taken seriously enough by the ECB or England. I mean, circumstances did dictate that they were unable to be as organised and as... Um, thorough in their planning as they were between 2015 and 2019 but um, you've got to say as well that the organisation on the ground with the team in India and some of the decision making left a lot to be desired as well Yeah, the preparation uh, I know that um, there's, there, there was a bit of chat about the immediate preparation to the tournament by playing Ireland and New Zealand at home, whether those games or certainly the New Zealand game could have been moved to the subcontinent in some way, shape or form. But I'm guessing, I'm, I'm reading that county championship fixtures meant that that couldn't happen. I'd probably put a question mark against that because of the players involved. How many county championship teams would that necessarily have, have gone with? Um, but 
since we had this brave new dawn with with Rob Key and Stokes and McCullum and all of that, one thing that I seem to have picked up on is preparation seems to be a running theme. You know, it's all flattered by these amazing performances, particularly in Test match cricket. But you know, we started the Ashes. Um, certainly the first two tests, very much undercooked. Finally, once we got going, then it became a real thrilling, um, nail-biting um, series, which all Ashes, Ashes series should be. And in this World Cup, it looks like England was sleepwalking into the first six or seven games, and it was only once they got to the fag end of their fixture schedule that they started playing like the England we sort of know that they can be. Um, are we playing too much cricket? Are there too many uh, distractions to prepare properly for big tournaments? Um, are we playing too much cricket is a perennial question, isn't it, Darren? Yeah. And the answer to that is yes, they're playing way too much cricket. Um, England play more than than any other country in the world. You look at the number of test matches, the number of one-day internationals, the number of T20s, and just tours in general. England are playing you know the limit of their capacity that they can um there is only so much all format players can take you know um they're not robots they need to have rest and uh, if they're not rested properly look at you know ben stokes with his knee drop for archer with that elbow problem um players break down um I, I would say in terms of the world cup you look at new zealand they went to bangladesh for an odi series before it started australia were in india playing a one-day series I think it's no coincidence both of those teams are in the semi-finals. Um, England could have possibly had more warm-up games in India. They had a 12-day gap, I think, between the end of the New Zealand series and uh, flying out to India. There could have been a, a chance of going out to India five days early and playing a couple more games. Could have done, but then you get to the workload question again. Could the players physically do it? Um and in terms of warm-up games in general, you mentioned McCullum and Stokes. I mean, warm-up games have completely gone out the window um, under their leadership of the test team. And you can look at it and say, well, England have transformed themselves. They're now brilliant to watch. And results-wise, you can't argue. But you look at the India tour coming up after Christmas, England have no warm-up games for the first test in Hyderabad. They go to the UAE for a training camp. Um, they're not playing any warm-up games before they fly to India. And you just think, how are they going to go into that series so unprepared and have a chance of winning? You, you never know because the way they play, it's just kind of, you know, maybe it'll work. But I can't see anything other than a heavy defeat for England. It's probably going to take them a couple of tests just to get into the rhythm of cricket in India and, and getting used to the conditions, I'd think. Well, they won't have played Test cricket for quite a long time either, would they? They've not played any Test matches since the back end of July, and then they're expected to go into the absolute hotbed of uh, a series in India. Um, management of this team, you mentioned about Rob Key. Rob Key seems to be doing a lot of defensive talking of the team, but um, Matthew Mott um, recently, and I think you highlighted, he gave a very terse press conference and I don't think helped himself or helped the cause by responding in the way he did to questions with one word answers and uh, figurative shrugging of the shoulders. Does that something that needs to be worked on? Um, uh, yeah, I, I don't know how you can work on that, but in terms of Matthew Mott, 
the more he spoke during the World Cup, um, the worse it got for him because the results weren't getting any better. I mean, you mentioned the two wins at the end, but all the pressure really had gone, hadn't it? They were playing for what Champions Trophy qualification, which in normal times, with England not being as competent as they were, would be an absolute given. Um, So he he got worse as the tournament went on in terms of communicating with us. And you just wonder what is his communication like with the players behind closed doors? If you're that terse and, and you're speaking so unimpressively what the hell is he like inside that dressing room um i think he's lucky to survive the sack from this world cup campaign i know it's not all down to the coach there are other factors and rob key kind of threw himself over matthew motton and took a hit for him saying you know it's not his fault but i think matthew Mott's very very lucky not to be uh paying the price for this this world cup campaign yeah owen morgan on commentary um well, he, he he did more than hint that he thought that there was unrest in the dressing room. And uh, it wasn't just once, it was a few times he sort of talked about this and expanded on it um, when he was uh, given the opportunity. But he definitely felt that something was wrong. And for a team to fall so highly from 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 grace was, was primarily, he thought, down to something going on in the dressing room. Maybe... Um, Mott might have his fingerprints on this, but I know the players have come out and said, no, everything's fine, but they would say that, wouldn't they? Um, there, there seems to, it's, we seem to be at a point now where there, there's, there comes to need to be a reset, of certainly of the of the white ball team, the 50 over team. Um, and, and added to that was this farce about the contracts being announced uh, midway through. What was the thinking there? Well, the thinking there was the the fact they were introducing these new multi-year deals. Um, it took a lot, lot longer to sort than it would have done ordinarily under the old system, where it was just annual central contracts. Um, that led to a lot of toing and froing between uh, the PCA, the England Player Partnership, and lawyers just hammering down the terms of these contracts. So it dragged into dragged into the World Cup campaign. Um, you had the situation, I think it was two days before the Sri Lanka game, where all these contracts were finally announced. The decision to announce them then, Rob Key told us, was because he was worried that if he left it any longer, the media would be leaked the details of these contracts, um, which is remarkable, really. But that's where, where we were with it. Um, and, you know, the headline from, from that announcement was Ben Stokes has rejected a three-year deal and has only taken a... A twelve-month deal, and then of course David Willey was the only bloke in that squad who hadn't landed a contract at all. So um, they deny that that caused any unrest or in the in the camp. But you look at David Willey announces his retirement, you know, two weeks before the end of the tournament, saying he's going to quit after the World Cup. That doesn't suggest a, a completely happy camp, and it also doesn't suggest that the timing of that contract announcement was uh, was wise. Yeah, um, and I I wonder about um, players having too much power. It's getting a a little bit football-like now, Um, and I'm just wondering whether Rob Key and the ECB um, are kind of trying to bend over to accommodate players going and playing franchise cricket and not necessarily being tied to the England shirt. But, I mean, if we go down that route, then we're only going to see further disasters um, at, uh, at tournament level. 
Yeah, I mean, remarkably, these contracts were announced sort of midway through a really, really terrible campaign for England. And you've got a lot of players who, on the face of it, you look at now and say they probably haven't got a future, at least in 50-over cricket. I'm talking David Milan, who's been dropped for that upcoming tour of the Caribbean. Uh, Adil Rashid is not in the the one-day squad for that tour. Nor is Moen Ali, nor is Chris Wokes. These guys are all on all on deals. And you've got the likes of Phil Salt, Will Jacks. Um, you think two players who are going to be part of the future of, of the one-day team and the T20 team, not on deals at all. Um, and yeah, they were brought in to kind of stave off the threat of players signing deals with with IPL franchises and their various other teams they have around, around the globe. But the young promising players or the younger promising players, a lot of them aren't, aren't, aren't on deals. So they can walk off, Will Jackson walk off and say, do you know what? I'm not going to play uh, in the next one day series, whenever it is. I'm going to go and play in the Pakistan Super League or, or the IPL or the ILT20. Um, so I, th- I think the contract thing was a, a bit of a, a bit of a mess. They went too early, I think, on offering old players long deals, and they spent an awful lot of money on it as well. Yeah, and does that mean that they're kind of handcuffed to these these guys on deals? You know, are they are they going to be? pushed into picking them because they're paying them rather than trying to explore new talent? Well, you would kind of think so, but Milan is a prime example. He's literally just, the ink's barely dry on his one-year deal and he's effectively been told he's not going to play for England again. You know, Rob Key said never say never, but he's not in the one-day squad and he won't be in the future. He's 36. And... um, in the T- T20 squad, he, he's not in that either. And he's been told he needs to up his game if he wants to get recalled before the World Cup. So effectively, Milan is being paid a year's money, several hundred thousands of pounds for probably not playing any cricket for England, which is remarkable, really. I'm comparing it to 2015, where we were a similar... Oh, excuse me. Yeah. 2015, we had a miserable World Cup where we didn't get out of the group stage and the team was reset, and it was the last time we saw the likes of Ravi Bapar at the time. I had to name one, but there were there were a few that um, weren't part of the the process going forward to twenty nineteen. So there was a plan in place, pretty much from the word go in that. Um, but you know, for the next World Cup in South Africa, the planning does look to be even more muddled than ever. And I think these contracts aren't making things easier at all for the way England are, are going to sort of set the roadmap out. Um, who do you think? Let's try and put a positive spin on this. Who has come out of this with credit and where's the future looking um, for for England, let's say, for the next 12 months? You mentioned a couple of names, but who's who's who comes out of the, of the World Cup with any credit? Well, funnily enough, the, the one batsman you think comes out of credit is David Milan. He actually did OK. Um, the average 45, I think, and scored a... 100 and did all right, but he's not going to be seen again. Um, Adil Rashid, look at his figures. He even got 15 wickets at 26 or 27. Did really, really well, but he's obviously 35 and, and not one for the future. Um, I think Harry Brook, him actually not playing for quite a few of the games has made him look better. Um, he actually did. He was the only batsman who stood up against Afghanistan in that game in Delhi where they lost. Um he he is the future of of England English white ball cricket, and that one day team in particular needs to be built around Harry Brook. I would say, 
Um, and then you've got the the other younger guys coming through. I think Will Jacks in particular is a guy I I love the look of. England like him. He can bat as an opener. He can probably bat down the order as well, depending on the balance of the team. Uh, we've got Phil Salt. We've got Rian Ahmed, who's been selected for that Caribbean tour. And you think he's such an exciting talent that he needs to be nurtured over the next four years and and kind of given the game's time, especially in one-day cricket, to to kind of find his rhythm in that and could be a potential superstar ahead of that 2027 World Cup. Um, there is the talent in England. We have a huge depth of white ball talent. So it just needs to be, there needs to be a plan effectively, like there was between 15 and 19. There needs to be a proper plan um, put in place so that come the next World Cup, the next ODI World Cup in 2027, England are rebuilt properly with a younger squad they actually got a proper game plan everyone in that team knows their roles and they can actually make a, a decent fist of the tournament and, and not you know go down in a ball of flames like they did in this one and what about Reese Topley who had his injury problems but since he's sort of got his way through all that his luck's been awful you know getting uh treading on a, a Toblerone boundary rope advertising foam sponge uh, injuring himself and then in this tournament doing really well um, but uh, you know a freak accident in fielding off his own bowling but I think if he can stay fit he should be part of uh, of the team going forward as well Absolutely I mean you mentioned kind of how unlucky Reese has been we, we spoke to him after the Bangladesh game, which was England's second game of the tournament, and, and Reese did really well in that. He'd been actually been dropped for the well, not been picked for the opening game, unbelievably, um, but was recalled for that second game and, and did really well. And we were speaking to him after that, and he was mentioning, you know, how unlucky he's been, and he was hoping this World Cup would be a change in fortunes for him, and he was looking forward to it. And then two games later, yeah, as you say, he breaks a finger trying to make a catch off his own bowling and. The poor guys, poor guys sent home. But in terms of long-term thinking, I think Reese is definitely um, a guy you should look at for that next World Cup in 2027 because if he can stay fit, he should be the leader of that attack, I would say. And he'll be young enough, I think, about 33 when that tournament starts to to make it as well. So let's just hope he has a, an extended run without without injuring himself and, and a run of games and hopefully he can be the kind of leader of that attack going forward. Yeah, it's funny. I, I read something about um, his um, injury history might actually go in his favour because despite his age, whatever it is, he hasn't actually played. You know, he hasn't got, if he was a car, he hasn't got very mar many miles on the clock. So, you know, keeping fit and injury free and, uh, yeah, a turn of good luck as well would help. And I think he, he certainly is, is there for the next four years, definitely. Um, overall, then, on this World Cup, um, if you want to just sort of sum it up in a nutshell how was the tournament and who do you think has stood out overall away from England who who have been the star performers and have you got a magical moment that will stick with you when you look back to 2023 yeah I mean for all the lack of organization and you could also say there's been a lack of close games as well it's still been a cricket world cup and there has been some fantastic moments and and some fantastic cricket I mean this is going out obviously before the final on Sunday, but India have looked a, a, a level above everybody else. I mean, the way they've not only played their cricket, but withstood the pressure of that you know, 1.4 billion home fans 
kind of expecting them to win this tournament. The way they've done that has been so impressive. Um, and you look at someone like Mohamed Shami. I mean, for me, he is the man of the tournament at the moment. He's just been amazing. Um, in terms of magic moments, I mean, I wasn't there on the ground, but I was watching on TV. The Glenn Maxwell double hundred against Afghanistan was just <laughs> remar remarkable, remarkable innings. Um, yeah. And by the end, he was making it look easy, even though he kind of could barely move. Um, for me, that's a magical moment. But you never know, Darren, there might be a few more magical moments before <laughs> Sunday evening. Well, let's just hope um, that it's a close game. And it's, it's a game worthy of the final. I know one of the other criticisms of this tournament is there's been far too many one-sided games and hardly any down to the wires. But um, let's hope that on Sunday we do get something that's going to be worthy of the occasion. Chris, I will let you crack on. Um, are you off to the Caribbean with England uh, next month? No, no, I'm not. I'm, my next my next assignment is India after Christmas for those test matches. So, oh, okay. Uh, so, so back again. Uh, all right. Well, many thanks for joining us. Uh, look after yourself and we'll speak soon. It's Chris Stocks from The Independent. Cheers, Darren. Thanks, mate.